Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week we'll be traveling through Texas. The state has a pretty rough history, with plenty of dark tales to make your skin prickle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. But one city has become notorious for its dark legends and mysterious locations. Athens is a small city in the northeast of Texas, but it has a big reputation. As the birthplace of the hamburger, a fact that's been supported by the prestigious McDonald's Hamburger University, because that's a thing. But it also happens to have a darker history, too. One that runs deep below your feet. Athens, it's said, is crisscrossed with a series of underground passageways that run beneath the city's streets. Sure, plenty of cities are said to have tunnels running beneath them for various reasons, some proven and well-known, some discovered by accident, and some only rumored to exist. But the tunnels in Athens are, supposedly anyway, quite unique. Legend says that the passageways beneath the streets, in fact, form a pentagram, with the courthouse at the very center and an entrance at each of the five points in the star. Entrances, it must be pointed out, that are known only to a select handful of locals who are in the know. While there are plenty of stories and second-hand accounts of people who have ventured into the tunnels, there's no concrete evidence of where the entrances are located, or what's really inside. Some have suggested they may have been part of the Underground Railroad to aid the escape of African-American slaves, or as a way of transporting moonshine during the prohibition of the 1920s and 30s. 
but others have pointed to a much more nefarious purpose. It's said they've been used for the practice of satanic rituals. A stretch, maybe, with no physical proof, but when you consider that satanic cults and rituals have been a consistent problem for Athens, maybe it's not so unlikely after all. A rash of mutilated animal corpses and at least one case of grave robbing that involved stealing the skull and finger bones of a Civil War soldier even led, at one point, to local law enforcement hosting an occult awareness workshop. Many of the sacrifices and rituals that have been reported center on one location in Athens in particular, a place called Fuller Park, which, coincidentally, is also rumored to house one of the five entrances to the tunnels beneath the city. The park is on private property and close to the public, but even in photos in the middle of daylight, the park has an ominous feel. It doesn't help that the most prominent features of the park are the grave of the previous owners, the Reverend Medford Lee Fuller and his wife Virginia, and a series of large monkey cages. Whether or not these cages, though, are linked to another famous Athens haunt depends on who you ask. While it no longer stands, Haunted Monkey Bridge was the site of a horrific circus train derailment in the 1960s. Late one night, a train carrying the performers, crew, equipment, and animals of the circus jumped the tracks at the Thunder Bridge. The cars, including a boxcar housing the circus's caged monkeys, came free of the tracks and crashed. Frenzied from the violence of the collision, the monkeys broke free of the boxcar and began to violently attack their handlers. The men were torn and bitten to death before the monkeys turned and fled, disappearing into the night. Even though the bridge no longer stands, some say late at night you can still hear the sound of men screaming and the howls of the monkeys as they tear the men apart. So, whether it's hidden tunnels, satanic rituals, or murderous ghost monkeys, it seems there are plenty of scares to be found in Athens, Texas. But I think it's time we scared up some horrors of our own. Our first story of the evening comes from Paul Edwards. Paul Edwards lives in the market town of Frome, Somerset, in the UK. He is married and has two daughters and works full-time as a support worker for Bath and Northeast Somerset Council. In his spare time, he loves watching, reading, and writing horror, and has been published over 50 times in a variety of anthologies, magazines, and e-zines. The Sea in the Statues was his first ever published story. He wrote it when he was just 19 on an old electric typewriter as part of an assignment for his creative writing course at Bath Spa University College. But more recently, Paul has seen two short story collections published, Now That I've Lost You, Screaming Dreams Press, and Black Mirrors, Rainfall Publications. Rainfall also published a novella by Paul called Infernal Love in October 2017. Paul draws his inspiration from horror movies, rock music, and ghost stories and lists Ramsey Campbell, Joel Lane, Poppy Z. Bright, Gary Bronbeck, and David Almond, among his favorite writers. Join me for Paul Edwards' The Sea and the Statues.
Harriet sat in the corner of her favorite chair. Sing to me, Danielle, sing to me, she said. Danielle put Drummy to bed. The clock on the wall chimed seven. Mummy, Drummy can't get to sleep. Drummy will sleep. Come over and sing to me. Danielle sighed and stamped her little foot before falling to Harriet's feet. She took hold of her mother's hand. What shall I sing to you, Mummy? Harriet could see Danielle, but it was different to what Danielle looked like. In her mind, she had perfect round blue eyes and beautiful blonde hair. Anything you like. So Danielle sang her favorite song, and both voice and sea merged into one harmonious sound. Harriet felt the tears slide down her cheeks. Once Danielle had finished, the child let go of her mother's hand and gazed up at her room. I wonder if Drummy can dream like I can. Isn't he asleep yet? No, he's sitting in bed listening to the sea. Mummy, do dreams come true? Sometimes. What is it you dream, Danielle? The girl paused, then paced the room. She kept glaring at the clock. Finally, she spoke. I dream Drummy is alive, that he can talk back to me and we can play hopscotch on the beach. Mummy, do you think there are other people out there? Of course there are. Someday, I'm sure you'll meet somebody. What's the time? Somebody not a statue? Is it gone seven? Harriet didn't think about the statues too much. She had grown to accept them. Not yet. I don't believe you, young lady. Come on, let's get you to bed. Drummy needs the company. The morning was golden and clear. Slants of sunshine cut through the crystal panes and cast Drummy in a warm glow. The puppet sat lifeless on the cabinet, smiling at no one in particular. Danielle was sitting at the table, stirring her cereal and her milk, staring at Drummy. She winked at him and spooned herself some food. And the day grew like any other day, and Danielle took her mother out across the beach. She pushed Harriet along in her wheelchair. Harriet sat, quite content, enjoying the sun's warmth on her skin and the sound of the lazy waves. She smiled to herself. Is the sun bright this morning? Danielle looked up as she pushed the wheelchair. Yes, Mummy. There isn't a cloud in the sky. Oh, dear. Then you can't play your favorite game today. Oh, wait. I can see one. It looks like... It looks like our house by the sea. I can see the slanting roof, and if I look hard, the wind chimes through my bedroom window. Once, when Mummy had her sight, and you hadn't even been born, I used to lie on the fields and make pictures with the clouds. Maybe you'll see again one day. Harriet turned her head. It was the only part of her body she could move. You're changing direction. I had to, Mummy. There was a statue in the way. A pretty statue. A young boy. He's got ever such a pretty face and long locks of hair. I wonder if he ever lived. Do you think that's what happens to your body, Mummy? Once you go to heaven, does it turn into a statue? Harriet just laughed. Just of late, the statues had been building up. New ones were appearing all the time. 
Each one always caught a glimpse of Danielle before Danielle caught a glimpse of them. The wind picked up and the lazy waves began to roar. Danielle put a blanket around her mother. Shall we go now, Mummy? Yes, dear. The wind is cold and the sea is restless. Good. I'm missing Drummy. A bout of melancholia momentarily hung over Harriet. It was triggered by her usual twinges of guilt. Perhaps Harriet should not have brought up the child by the sea. Perhaps she could have been mingled with others. No, it would have been hard. Danielle giggled. That new cloud looks like a snake with its tongue poking out. You and your strange imagination. Come on, let's hurry. There might be a storm. How quickly the weather changes. The child steered her mother around the statues and saw the house was in sight. Then she stopped. There was a long pause. The wind howled cold on Harriet's face. She sensed something was not right. What's wrong? Why have we stopped? Hush, Mummy. In the distance, I can see someone. I can see him walking about. What does he look like? Shush! He's coming closer. Oh, Mummy, what shall I do? The wind blew harder and Harriet shivered. The stranger walked closer and he lifted his head. Danielle smiled at him. For Harriet, the period of waiting was agonizing. Then, Danielle, who is he? Oh, Mummy, I was wrong. He was just another statue. Her disappointment sounded close to despair. Slowly, they started moving again. They made their way back to the house in total silence. That afternoon, Danielle played with Drummy until she got bored. Then she prepared tea, careful not to cut herself whilst chopping the vegetables, and they ate in front of the fire. When the clock chimed seven, Danielle tucked Drummy into bed and helped Harriet from her chair onto the settee. She kissed her goodnight. Don't forget to call if you need anything, she said. I won't, Angel, replied Harriet. Danielle ascended the wooden steps and lay on her bed. The window was open and the wind whistled in and stroked the wind chimes. She was feeling better. Good night, Drummy, she said and kissed her doll. Then she rolled over and played with the snakes in her hair until she fell asleep. That was Paul Edwards' The Sea and the Statues, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle Kane lives in the Kansas City metro area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she never has time to play because she's too busy spending time working in a cube farm and being mom to her 6-year-old son and 11-year-old lab. She enjoys narrating stories whenever she gets the chance. Thank you, Michelle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story of the evening comes from Andrew Burrell. Andrew Burrell is the author of the novel Heavy Metal, a literary thriller that won the Autumn House Fiction Prize. He also co-authored the novel Texas Ranger with best-selling author James Patterson. Burrell's short stories have been published widely in literary journals and fiction anthologies, most recently in the Best American Mystery Series, E is for Evil, Pulp Adventures, Thriller Magazine, and Weird Book Magazine. Listen with me to Andrew Burrell's Little Healers, first published in Swords and Steam Short Stories from Flame Tree Publishing, 2016. Jessica stepped through the gate of the graveyard and began walking among the tombstones. Her breath came out in nervous bursts, white in the darkness. Her wool cape was pulled tight around her, but she still felt chilled. The cold came through the seams of her clothes, icy tendrils so tiny that they wormed their way through the threads of the fabric. Her hands trembled, but she thought this might not be because of the cold. She had journeyed into the graveyard to look for her husband. She could see quite clearly with the moon casting a bluish-white light on the frosted ground. She saw a feral cat sitting atop a stone cross, and in the distance she could hear the faint howling from what she hoped was a dog and feared was a wolf. She reached involuntarily into the deep pocket of her cape and wrapped her hand around the grip of her husband's gun. Henry had shown her once how to load it, how to measure the powder and ram the ball down the barrel, tamping it to make sure it was in place, and she had remembered the instruction well. There had been no real purpose to the lesson, 
he was target shooting, practicing for a fox hunt he'd been invited to, and she'd asked him about the gun. He then showed her how to use it. He let her shoot once, and when she hit on her first attempt, the target he had missed his previous three tries, he had snatched the gun away from her and told her to leave him be. He had the steadiest hands of any person she'd ever known, but he was a poor shot with the pistol because he flinched when he pulled the trigger. She had been secretly proud that she could shoot better than him. She had never dreamed that she might need the gun to protect herself from him. In the distance, Jessica saw the faint glow of a light, a lantern. She crept through the grass and could hear each step pressing down on the stalks, frozen stiff from the cold. She used the trees and the headstones for cover, and as she drew closer to the light source, she heard the scrape of a shovel against frozen dirt and an occasional muffled voice. She finally came to a point where she could see them, and she knelt behind a large marble headstone and spied. Her husband was in the grave, his waist level with the ground, tossing shovelfuls of dirt into a pile. Her husband's assistant, James, stood above, holding the lamp. Henry wasn't wearing his top hat. It sat atop a nearby grave marker, and the lamplight illuminated his face, even at this distance, she could see his eyes were wide and crazed, like a lunatic escaped from the asylum. She realized her fears were warranted. He was doing exactly what she dreaded, and she felt rage swelling from within, so powerful she wanted to rush into the lamplight, gun drawn. But she restrained herself and continued watching from her remove. How could he do this? He was digging up the grave of their son. Henry had begun to sweat underneath his shirt and trench coat. His chest rose and fell, pulling cold air into his lungs and exhaling smoky bursts. He thrust the shovel again, biting into the black soil, and then swung the dirt up and out, dumping it upon the growing pile. James, his protege, stood above the hole with the lamp. Only one of them could fit in the grave at a time. Henry was tired, but he felt this work, digging up the grave of his own child, was his responsibility. He had brought James along only for... For what? he asked himself. But he knew the answer, in case he found what he was looking for. Finally, the blade of the shovel struck wood, and the two men looked at each other. The hole was five feet deep now, and Henry was buried almost to his shoulders. He scraped and shoveled more, clearing the top of the coffin lid. He tossed the shovel out, and his assistant handed down the pry bar. The space in the hole was tight, 
because the coffin was only four feet long, and he kept bumping into the walls with his shoulders and elbows. His coat was mud-caked, and his gloves were blackened and stiff. He pried the lid at its edges, the wood creaking loudly in the black night. But he couldn't pry up the lid, because he was standing on the coffin. Damnation, he growled. He stopped working, closing his eyes and breathing deeply. His specialty was working in close quarters, working with the tiny, the minuscule. If he could build the inventions he had, using magnifying glasses and instruments smaller than sewing needles, then he could find a solution to this problem. He climbed out and instructed James about what he wanted to do. James set the lamp down at the edge of the hole. Henry, holding the pry bar in one hand, lay chest down on the ground, his arms hanging over the edge. His assistant grabbed his legs, lifting him forward, lowering him head first into the open grave. The lid of the coffin shrieked as Henry pulled it away, and then he was face to face with his son. Both of the coins that had been laid across the boy's eyelids had slipped off in burial, and Anson's eyes were wide and staring. Sitting in dark, sunken sockets, the whites of the eyes had begun to turn yellow, and the irises, once a brilliant blue, were softening into a milky gray. The boy's skin was yellow and already tightening against his skull. No father should have to see such a sight, Henry thought. And then the stench crawled up his nostrils, and he shouted to his assistant to pull him up. Jessica watched as James pulled Henry out of the grave by his feet. Her whole body was trembling. That was the grave of her son they were defiling, and it didn't matter that the one doing the defiling was her husband. In fact, that made it worse. She hadn't wanted to believe he was capable of something like this. He had always been obsessive, but that's what gave him his genius. And he was a genius. This was no exaggeration. He was the son of a watchmaker, taught at an early age to examine the inner workings of machinery. By the time he was a teenager, he was more skilled than his father, able to design and assemble the gears and pins to build clocks, large and small. It was widely known that he helped his father build the town's clock tower, which had run without slowing for twenty years. However, Henry had confided in her, and she believed him, that he had done the majority of the work, and his father had actually been the assistant. Each night from their home, she and Henry could hear the distant ringing of the clock at each hour, its long, slow cadence of chimes was soothing to her, and she always felt a swelling of pride that her husband had created such a marvel. His real specialty, however, was in smaller machines. 
he built complex timepieces no larger than a coin, with intricate gears virtually invisible without the use of a magnifying glass. This had begun his fascination with the minuscule. There are other worlds just out of our sight, he had told her when he began his courtship. He was a student at the university then, studying chemistry and biology and trying to understand the worlds that he said were there even if you couldn't see them, worlds of cells and molecules. Teaching others about this invisible world of science became his profession, but watchmaking continued as his hobby. He loved to toil hours in his study, using hair-thin needles as instruments, staring through magnifying glasses and making the inner workings of his timepieces smaller and smaller. Then he extended his inventions beyond watches and clocks, making elaborate and strange metal machines. He built mechanical figurines, foot-high toy soldiers, who could be wound up just as a pocket watch and walk and move their arms. Then he invented an elaborate pair of goggles with multiple lenses he could move in and out of his view, allowing him to work on an even smaller scale. Afterward, he made smaller versions of his figurines as chess pieces, knights, rooks, kings, and queens no taller than an inch, with microscopic inner workings, and created a game where the pieces played against each other without the aid of human participants. Once wound up with a turnkey, the pieces moved themselves. No strategy was duplicated, no matter how many times the figurines played. How did you do it? she had asked, amazed. It's a mixture of my two passions, he said, science and engineering. He explained that this was his true calling, to invent and to build. Through all of his studying, his teaching, his inventing, he had been a charming courter and remained a devoted husband. He genuinely enjoyed life and was exuberant about his discoveries. His cheerfulness extended to their carriage rides along the river, their evenings reading by the fire, their Saturday mornings having a cup of tea on the veranda. In those first years, she had wished he would come home earlier from his laboratory or spend less time in his study, but she wasn't ignored. He would arrive with a bouquet of roses or surprise her with tickets to the opera. In the darkest months of winter, when she was melancholic, she was always able to convince herself that life was as it should be, and she shouldn't ask for more. But life did give her more, a son. He was a beautiful, healthy baby boy, whom her husband doted over as much as she did. And for five years, their life together was even happier. Her husband spent more time at home, his son being his most interesting project yet. With their son, she finally felt complete. But then, 
young Anson became ill. They fretted over him as he lay feverish and unresponsive. They called in doctors, and when those doctors couldn't give her husband a clear diagnosis, he wrote for other doctors to come regardless of expense. While their frustration mounted, Jessica became her son's nurse. Henry retreated to his study and his laboratory, spending more time than ever away from the family. He saw his assistant, James, more than he saw his ailing son. Only then had she really become angry. Their son was dying, and Henry's response was to escape the family? But then, one day, as if by a miracle, Anson's fever broke. He sat up in bed, he smiled, he ate soup and laughed, and both she and her husband were there to watch the boy's return. Whatever illness had taken hold of him, he was healing now, and her husband was back. From the moment Anson's recovery started, Henry didn't so much as set foot in his study or leave for his lab at the university. She could forgive Henry and allow life to return to normal. But then they awoke two nights ago to Anson's screams. Running to his room, they found him writhing in his blankets. He was bleeding from his mouth and nose, his ears and eyes, even from the pores of his skin. She held him as he screamed. Her husband shouted, No, no, no! And then moments later, the boy's shrieks simply stopped. He was limp in her arms. His temperature, so hot during the illness, faded, and his body became chilled. When the physician and the funeral director came to remove Anson, Henry went mad, shouting that they must not take him, that he needed to inspect the body. She realized that her husband might have gone insane. The constable and two deputies had to restrain him, and he remained quiet, barely speaking through all of the funeral arrangements. Jessica wanted nothing more than to retreat, as her husband had before, and lay in bed weeping all day. But she'd had to collect herself and construct a strong face for family and friends. But her strength was a facade. She wasn't tough enough to shoulder the death of her son, certainly not compounded with the lunacy of her husband. And now the situation had grown even worse. After the funeral, she had come to his study to deliver a cup of tea. Outside the door, she heard voices and listened to Henry speaking to his lab assistant. They spoke about shovels and digging utensils and an agreed time to meet after dark. She couldn't believe it. He meant to examine the body still, even after it was buried. So she feigned going to bed and waited until Henry peeked into the room to make sure she was asleep. The covers were pulled to her neck, but she was fully clothed underneath and wide awake. 
She crept to the door to see her husband walking along the cobblestones under the orange glow of the street's oil lamp. She moved to follow him, but then stopped at the threshold. She turned back to retrieve his pistol from its mount above the fireplace, trying to convince herself it was simply an extra precaution. And now Jessica knelt in the graveyard, hiding behind a headstone, spying her husband and his assistant as they stared into the newly dug grave of her son. The world, it seemed, was going mad around her, and she was clinging to her own sanity as she clung to the pistol in her pocket. James asked, "'Do you want me to do it?' "'No,' Henry said, standing on weak legs." He's my son. He'd brought a toolkit with him, and now he turned to it. He opened it on the ground and quickly found what he was looking for a large scalpel with an eight inch handle and two inch razor sharp blade. The metal gleamed in the moonlight like a silver flame. He stepped down into the grave his feet balancing on each side of the coffin. He tried to kneel, but there wasn't enough room. He set his foot down inside, his ankle brushing his son's shirt. Now he knelt. The smell was rank, and he feared he might retch. He brought out his kerchief and held it to his mouth and nose. With his other hand, he tried to cut open Anson's shirt, he couldn't do it one-handed. He put the kerchief into his pocket and tried to breathe shallowly. He yanked open his son's shirt, tearing off the buttons and exposing the boy's yellowing flesh. Dear God, help me, Henry wailed. He stabbed the scalpel into the boy's abdomen and quickly, so he wouldn't lose his nerve, he cut upward. The blade stopped when he hit the breastbone. Henry, holding his breath from the fresh stink emanating from the cut, changed positions, giving himself leverage, and cut upward, opening the boy from navel to neck. Henry leaned back and ordered James to move the light. The assistant changed positions, illuminating the incision. Henry could see the gray meat of the boy's organs. Perhaps it wasn't. Then he saw movement inside the boy's chest cavity, a mass of what looked to be tiny insects poured out. Individually, they were barely large enough to see with the naked eye, much smaller than any ant, but they swarmed out in a heap thousands of them, growing like an eruption of thick black foam. Henry gasped, dropping the scalpel, and scurried out of the hole. The oil! he shouted. Get the bloody oil! His assistant hesitated for a moment, looking into the grave, and then his face turned pale, and he scrambled backward. He pulled a flask out of the toolkit, Henry snatched it from his hand and ran over to the hole. He began dumping the oil out onto the mass of tiny creatures. 
he splattered the oil over his son, trying to douse him from forehead to shoe tip. The creatures were now piled several inches high, with the pile growing and spreading with each second. He couldn't believe how many of them there were. "'Get the matches!' he shouted at James. The young man reached into his coat and drew out a box of matches. Henry emptied the bottle and then tossed the flask into the grave. It landed in the growing mass of insects, and immediately it was covered. "'Set fire to them!' Henry yelled. His assistant stepped forward and struck the match. He held it high over the grave, allowing the flame to grow to a healthy, vigorous height. "'Burn them!' Henry shouted. "'For the love of God, burn them all!' Jessica squeezed the trigger, and flames jumped from the barrel, lighting the darkness around her. Her husband's assistant grabbed his chest with his free hand, inhaled loudly, the sound constrained and wet, and then he fell face forward into the grave, bringing the match with him. Flames erupted from the hole in a flash of bright white light. She heard the man's shrieks and saw the flames twisting up out of the grave, orange and red and yellow. This wasn't what she'd wanted. She'd hoped he would fall backward, the match falling with him into the extinguishing chill of the icy grass. She lowered the gun and opened her mouth to scream, but no sounds came out. Next to the cauldron of fire, she saw her husband staring toward her. Henry could see nothing in the darkness. The lamp stood next to the pit, and flames reached up out of his son's grave, making the immediate vicinity as light as if it were day. But the light also had the effect of blinding him beyond its reach, and past a few gravestones he could only see blackness. He looked down into the hole and saw that James had stopped moving. Flames engulfed his son and his assistant, and he hoped the creatures that he'd come here to destroy. He stared back in the direction the shot had come from. He thought perhaps he was now in the sniper's sights. He turned and fled. As he ran, the headstones of the dead stood like sentinels driving him away. She approached her son's grave, moving slowly. The fire had begun to die, but her husband had left the lamp, and she could see clearly within its circle of light. She lifted the lamp and peered down into the grave. Tentacles of smoke undulated from the blackened remains of her son and the assistant. She looked carefully and thought she saw movement amidst the charred flesh, a blob of darkness among the coals that seemed to shift and writhe. She turned in horror and ran into the night. She found him in his study, sitting in front of his workbench, 
his head in his hands. The room was filled with microscopic lenses, magnifying glasses, and spectacles with glass of varying dimensions and thicknesses, tools and gears and mechanical pieces made of brass and copper and iron, lay scattered among the benches as well. But the dominance of the lenses made her feel as if she was being watched, surrounded by glass eyes. She walked to the other side of the table, lifted the reloaded gun, and said to her husband, "'What have you done?' He raised his head, looked at her at first with an expression that suggested he didn't recognize her. Then his face changed to a look of recognition, followed by a look of confusion. You, he said, it was you? Tell me what you've done, she yelled. He leaned back in his chair, hunched in defeat. You can lower the gun, I will tell you. Hesitantly, she lowered the pistol. Her chest heaved with each breath. His hand reached for a glass jar on the table. Clear glass tapered at the top and sealed with cork coated in melted wax. He slid it toward her. Look inside, he said. Don't open it. She picked up the jar with her free hand. She thought it was empty but then she held it close to her face and saw that inside were a few tiny black dots, perhaps a dozen, no bigger than grains of soil. They were moving, rolling around the bottom and up and down the sides of the glass, as if of their own volition. Here, he said, holding up a magnifying lens the size of a saucer, Hesitantly, she holstered the gun in her cape pocket and took the lens. She held it before the jar and looked through it. The black objects were still small, but now she could see with more clarity. Each dot was a tiny centipede with shells and hinged legs made of what looked like metal. They raced around the glass like insects, but she could see with enough detail to know that they were mechanical, not biological. My masterpiece, her husband said, but he spoke the words with irony. My greatest achievement. She set the glass down and slid it back across the table to him. What are they? I call them my little healers, he said. They eat germs, microbes of disease, only the bad. Or so I thought. Now she was beginning to understand. During Anson's illness, Henry had retreated to his laboratory and his study, and she had thought perhaps he didn't care that his son was dying. But all along he was trying to create some new invention that would cure Anson. I tested them, he said, but only on dead animals. When they consumed the dead flesh, I thought it was because they took the rot for disease. She stared at him. His face was white. 
and you unleashed them on our son? I did not know they would multiply as they did, he said. I only administered three, one in his mouth, one in his nose, one in his ear. I thought they would eat the disease and then die, or perhaps stay inside him bolstering his immune system. I did not think they would eat the bad and the good. She thought of her son's final minutes. You killed him, she said. He might have died anyway, he said absently, as if more to himself than to her. I wanted to make the world better, starting with our family. Don't you remember his screams, she said. He lifted the glass jar and looked in at the mechanical insects. I still hear his screams, he said. Then he set the jar down and stood quickly, moving so abruptly that she reached for the gun, startled. I'm going to the constable, he said. I plan to confess everything. She looked at him and remembered the man she'd fallen in love with. He had been overly obsessed with his work, but he had been a good husband, a good man with good intentions. She had forgiven him his imperfections before, but now, in the distance, the clock tower he built with his father began its midnight ring. The sound of the clock tower made Henry think of the potential he had once had and of the happiness he had once shared with Jessica. He looked again at his wife, remembering how beautiful she always was. Her face was stern now, expressionless. Her complexion was flushed, her eyes narrowed, her lips pressed into a thin, straight line. He had never seen her look this way. He hoped she could forgive him. He had acted for the sake of helping their son, not killing him. Surely she must understand. She was always very smart. She would understand, perhaps even try to talk him out of turning himself in. He took a step, and she said, Wait. He stopped, as the clock tower chimed again. And he turned to Jessica, longing for a loving look an expression that said she forgave him. Before you go, she said, you must do something. Yes, he said, anything. She motioned toward the glass jar. Swallow them, she said. He looked at the jar and gulped. But, he said, they are evidence, I must. She raised the pistol cocked the hammer back, and pointed the gun at his face. The gun was steady in her hand, the black circle at the end of the barrel staring at him like a dark eye. He sighed. A bullet would be more merciful, he said. Do you deserve mercy, she said. He lifted the jar and looked through the glass at his little healer's. He looked back at her and saw hate in her eyes. Forgive me, he said. I cannot forgive myself. 
then you shall not be forgiven. He pulled the cork off the top of the jar. In the distance, the last of the clock tower's midnight chimes was followed by a long, empty silence. That was Andrew Burrell's Little Healers, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen is an Austin musician, plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invade your mind with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.